This is Reimagine Law, a podcast about legal education and careers to help students navigate their career choices. Hello and welcome to Reimagine Law. Um, today's episode, uh, we're going to be talking about all things virtual reality courtrooms. Let me start by introducing our wonderful guest today, Francine Ryan. Hello and welcome. Hello, Fran. It's lovely to be here. Um, and uh, Francine, you have um, an esteemed career. You're at the Open University um, as a senior lecturer. Um, and you are also have a real research interest in um, education, the use of technology in education. Yeah, that's right. So I'm really interested in how we can leverage technology to help uh, students develop all sorts of practical and professional skills and also how that links to issues around access to justice, which we know our students are really committed and passionate about. Fantastic. And of course, you were a solicitor as well before you started in academia. So you bring that practice based experience to, to your work and research. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I practiced in Manchester for a lot of years uh, <laughs> doing disease litigation and uh, and now I've kind of come full circle. So I'm doing academia, but also some practical stuff because I work and supervise in our law clinic and I'm involved in projects where students are giving legal advice or legal information. So it kind of feels like I've come full circle. Which is <laughs> Uh, and disease litigation sounds to me like personal injury is that right yes yeah absolutely what we'd like to call the sexy part of personal injury so yes <laughs> uh, where people exposed to really horrible chemicals and things like that at work was my kind of area of expertise so yes um really interesting kind of work and um particularly from a historical perspective because lots of our clients had worked in industries over a long course of time and told us a lot about actually the history of a kind of the world that we employment in the world that we work in so it was a really interesting job to do fantastic um now we haven't had a guest on um, who's worked at the open university or been to the open university before so it'd be really awesome if you could just tell us a little bit about um it because i know it's a different type of university than a, a kind of traditional standard yes one. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously I am very biased, but I think the Open University is very special and our students are very, very special people. Um, and the Open University was set up in 1969 and we're sort of referred to as the kind of University of the Air. Um, so if anybody who is kind of old as me remembers the 1970s, our kind of broadcasting, that's how we delivered our materials. So you see lots of men in kind of very lovely brown 70s suits um, on television. Um, we still have a relationship with the BBC, so we still co-produce productions uh, for the BBC. I've been involved in one called The Detectives, but we've done one on the parole board, uh, the CPS. So that, that relationship still exists. But basically, the Open University is open to all people, places, method and ideas. And we are a university where we are what we call supported uh, online or distance learning. So our students study um, online with us. Um, they are geographically dispersed. So they can be at any point of the four nations. So that can be England and uh, Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales. We also have some students who are abroad. So we uh, have students who are in the armed forces and we have students in secure environments. So we have lots of students in prison studying with us. And the idea that you do it is through our virtual learning environment. You can study at your own pace. And we always say there's no such thing as a typical OU student. And that's because our students don't have to have any prior qualifications to come to work, to come and study with us. They can, they some, some of them have no qualifications up to a PhD, but there are programs are open access. And lots of our students are working or have caring responsibilities while studying with us, some part-time, some full-time. And we have students from sort of 17 
up to kind of mid 80s. Uh, the oldest student I ever taught was uh, uh, just coming up to 80, but I've got colleagues who've taught students who are slightly older than that. So it's a really diverse range of students. Um, and that's what brings the kind of richness and the depth to what we do, because we have this really interesting mix of people from huge different walks of life, uh, lots of different experiences in terms of their age. Um, and that's it, it's, that's what, so what I love about this job is that, that you just get to meet some really, really interesting people. And we are the biggest law school um, in Europe. We have over seven and a half thousand students. So we're a very big organization. So um, it's just, it's yeah, it's just a real privilege and a pleasure to, to teach for the Open University. And it's against that backdrop um, that you've just described that this virtual reality courtroom that we're going to yeah. move on to talk about really came to be. Because when you're working in that setting uh, with those types of students in that way, you have to be innovative with your, your teaching and learning. Absolutely. So our students are geographically dispersed. Our natural home is uh, the kind of main England campus is in Milton Keynes, but we have students, as I say, in the four nations. So um, in a traditional university, traditional brick university, you would have a often uh, they have a moot court. So they'd have a, a, a replica court that students would go into and do their uh, mooting or advocacy practice. Um, and mooting is a, a fantastic thing to do as part of your law degree in terms of developing your uh, advocacy skills, your presentation skills, your practical skills. And it's not just relevant for students who want to go to the bar, it's relevant yeah. for students who want to do uh, BP solicitors. So SQE2 has advocacy as part of it. So those opportunities to practice those skills are really, really valuable. Um, and obviously for us, there's no point having a physical courtroom because hardly any of our students <laughs> would get there and I'm not sure where we would put it. But one of the things that we were really interested in is how can we use technology to, uh, to kind of bring that courtroom to life? And we've had a little bit of experience working in VR previously where we'd, we'd created a VR app where students could go into a, a classroom or a, a prison sort of setting and could practice doing a presentation. But that involved um, a little headset, which is brilliant, but the technology is still not quite there. So if you've got these amazing kind of VR headsets um, that people have probably seen, then that's a huge, that's a whole different ball game. But to do it mm. at scale, that's really difficult. So we took the learning from that and we created a desktop virtual reality courtroom. So you can access it from your computer. You don't need a headset. So in terms of authenticity, it's not quite the same as that immersive element you would get wearing a headset. But actually, it's 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 pretty good and anybody who's done any gaming so if you've played call of duty or fifa it's kind of a bit like that experience um so you can go into this virtual courtroom and we have two modes to it we have the explore mode where students can go around and click information bu uh, buttons and find out things around you know what a judge does what a courtroom layout is and then we have another op opportunity where you can bring students together in into the courtroom and conduct some um courtroom advocacy and we have a at the moment we have a civil court and we have a criminal court and we are in the process of user testing this developing it it's been co-created with students so they have been involved in the process of telling us yes this works this doesn't work this is what we need to do and we hope at some point in the next um 
few months to be able to roll it out more extensively for our students but it's a really exciting opportunity to think about how we can use technology in an innovative way to kind of support our students to develop those really critical practical and professional skills. Wow so students could presumably just go for a little look around the courtroom if they want to get that experience of, of what it might be like to go to their local magistrates or county courts. Yes. Then they can also do the advocacy with their fellow peers who've also tuned into the app at the same time. Yep absolutely so they can go into a courtroom together so at the moment it supports up to 16 people going into the courtroom together one of the things that was was really interesting for us in terms of designing this and working with our students about this so any of you who've done any kind of courtroom advocacy before will know that one of the key things is in relation to your body language so being able to read someone else's body language look them in the eye see what their hand movements are or particularly when you're doing mooting have you lost the judge that's a really important thing to be able to know about and so when we were thinking about this a lot of people might be familiar with something called second life which was designed where you were an avatar and you went into a a space and did this kind of work but actually we wanted to take the best bits of second life being an avatar with the kind of the stuff that we've learned around teams and zoom where you can see people's faces on a screen and so you actually go into the courtroom and it sounds a bit weird but you are going as an avatar and you can dress as a a, in a suit or in, in judges robes or in barristers robes but your head is a video screen so you can actually still see people and you can look them directly you can see what their body language is because that's a really important thing to think about and that learning came from the students who worked with us to develop that because we realized that that was such an important thing to to marry those two things together so you the avatar element the technology element but the seeing element is still very important for those particular skills it's really interesting isn't it and it's it's only when you've had that experience of being in the courtroom that that's the kind of thing that you think about absolutely so you know obviously we've, we've got this amazing product um, and it's here for students' education. Um, is there a hope that this might be used in a in a wider sense than just for the students' education at some point in the future? Yeah, absolutely. So as part of my work, I'm director of the Open Justice Centre, which is our kind of our centre that looks at uh, different ways that we can support access to justice. Mm. And one of the things that we're just like lots of other universities really keen to think about is how we can leverage our expertise to help the free advice sector and we're really keen to think about how this could be used in an access to justice space because we know that lots of people are representing themselves in court hearings that it's very scary to go to court on your own Um, and particularly in family and employment cases uh, courts are there are lots of people representing themselves and that has an impact on the court process. So we're really keen to think about how this might be used to support and help people going to court by themselves. So in a way, partly to demystify the process for them, so to show them what a courtroom looks like before they go, because often, particularly if you live in a rural area, you're quite far away from a local court. You've never maybe ever been into a court. You have no idea what the layout's like and you want that kind of feeling of reassurance before you go in. So that's one aspect of it. And the second aspect would be could we think of a way to work with organizations to help people come into the courtroom and do some prep work before they go to practice doing a bit of presentation of their case understanding where they will sit where the judge will sit how kind of the whole layout how it works for them so that this is not the first time they've gone into a physical court so once they go into our virtual space they can do all that practicing and then when they go into a real court they've had some experience of what that feels like and hopefully makes that experience less difficult and less uh, less traumatic so that's a real hope for us and we're kind of working with a number of organizations at the moment looking at how we might be able to do that um, and we think there's great potential uh, 
for this kind of technology to support this kind of work. Absolutely. I mean, you can almost see a situation where in years down the line, each individual courthouse has this so that it's kind of unique for their litigants and person that are going in. It's it's a really innovative idea. Yeah. And in Scotland, the, 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 there's, a, there's a big project in Scotland that's been funded by the, uh, the justice sector in Scotland where they are using uh, VR. They have commissioned uh, VR within Scottish courts. And that's particularly aimed at witnesses, not litigants in person, but people going to court uh, to give evidence in, in particularly in criminal cases um, and they've got a, a very interesting big project being developed so I think there's lots of potential around this and it's uh, there's some really interesting stuff around how we do some research around this as well to think about what works and what doesn't for people because there are some things that if you use a headset there are some things you have to think about for people who suffer from kind of sickness or anything like that it quite, can be quite a disorientating experience so one of the really interesting things to look at is what types of vr might work what's scalable what's accessible because obviously things like digital exclusion and digital poverty are things that we're really aware of because we know that not everyone has access to the internet not everyone has the skills to be access to access the internet so if we're thinking about this technology that which it's hopefully very empowering what we don't want to do is disempower people by not having people to have access to it so there's really some work to think about around digital exclusion digital poverty about supporting people to use this technology and that's why yeah. it's really important to work in partnerships with organizations to do that it's fascinating because in many respects we've seen access to justice really improve through the harnessing of technology um but I know that you and I in the past have also spoken about how tech can sometimes hinder the average person who's looking for legal advice or or trying to engage with the legal system in, in different ways. Perhaps you could you could say a bit to that. Yeah, I think it's about trust is a huge thing. So we yeah. know that in when you're presenting a legal case, legal advice has to be correct and, and right. That's a really fundamental thing. Law has to be right. It can't be kind of half right. It has to be absolutely right. And we have to have trust in the, the materials that we're reading. So there are lots of really fantastic resources from Citizens Advice, Advice Now that are trusted resources. But find for people to find access to those resources is quite difficult. And I'm sure the listeners are all aware of what's happened very recently. I think it's probably about a year to the day that ChatGPT launched. So I think it was the 30th, around something like the 30th November, ChatGPT launched, um, which is a generative AI. Uh, it's an open access tool. I'm sure lots of listeners will have used ChatGPT and very similar things. So it basically, it kickstarted the GAI race. So we now have Bard, we have uh, Llama, we have Claude. We have lots of kind of people in this space now developing AI resources. And AI's you know, potentially is fantastic in terms of what it can do. And for those uh, listeners who've used ChatGPT or perhaps less familiar with it, uh, it's a, a large language model where you can ask it a question. It's had, it takes information from the internet and it produces a, a conversational uh, with you, a conversation with you, and you can ask it different questions and you can ask it follow-up questions. Now, that potentially is very, very exciting. But with it, there are some very significant risks. The information for ChatGPT is taken off the internet. Um, it's only up to a certain point. We don't know all, where that, all that information has come from. And as a result, that produces hallucinations and errors. And if people are using that for legal advice, and because everybody's talking about ChatGPT, it's, it's 
in the news all the time, then we know that people are, are using it. So, for example, there was a case in Manchester in the summer where a litigant in person uses use ChatGPT to help them in their legal case. And unfortunately, the sources, the cases that it produced were incorrect. Um, and that obviously had significant consequences for that. And it's not just it's not just litigants in person. We also know of uh, two lawyers in the US who did the similar thing. Um, so we need to understand how the technology works and we need to understand that it needs to be trusted. And at the moment, um, and, and ChatGPT and these models say, you know, we're not here to provide legal advice. But perhaps if people are not so familiar with that, they might not be aware that asking it to provide them with some information, it might not necessarily be accurate. And so I think there's a lot of work that we need to do as law schools, um, as free advice organisations around public legal information about supporting people to understand that these models might be there to assist, but actually they need to be used with, with caution and that we you cannot guarantee the accuracy of those results um, and that finding trusted legal advice is really important. And, and actually, us calling it legal advice, you know, you and I are qualified lawyers, our listeners, you know, many of whom will want to be, uh, we know what legal advice means. But when you see a disclaimer like that, and you're an average layperson who doesn't have engagement with the legal system, you might not realise that actually asking it a question that links to the law is, is seeking legal advice. Absolutely. And you might also not understand about things like jurisdiction. So yeah. for example, at the moment, the model often defaults to US, to US law, um, but it's not all, always very clear that it's talking about US law. So you could presume that that's law that applies here. Also, if you ask it a, a question about UK law, as, you, as the listeners will know that we have devolution. So we know that laws are different in, in different areas of the UK. Again, as a, as a layperson, you might not be familiar with that. So it's, it's things like that that also add this kind of levels of complexity that you need to be able to unpick. And it, giving legal information or, or legal advice or anything like that, it's not it's not a sim we know that it's not a simple process um and also these models are um they're not sentient they're not there to to think they they can't check the validity of what they're saying they they're literally just predicting the next word in a sentence so we have to and because the answers are very superficially very good it kind of lulls us into perhaps a kind of false sense of security that this is actually there's somebody behind this, but there isn't. So it's that really understanding the risks and the limitations of it and interrogating what it's there for and the purpose of it is really important. And I would encourage all the law students listening to this to also be thinking about this because this is relevant for their practice where they go into working in law firms, they're going to be using working with this technology. So they need to understand how it works the risks and the limitations of it and the opportunities of it. So it's it's very important in the asset access to justice space, but it's very important in terms of employability for our students thinking about moving into to law and actually any career now is going to have these this kind of uh, technology as part of it. So it's relevant for, for, for all our students, irrespective of whether they're doing law or not. Yes, yeah, it's, it's so interesting, isn't it? And when you think about your courtroom setting as well, your virtual reality courtroom, um, I don't know whether um, the plan is to have it where, you know, judges can can respond to submissions so you could literally practice your advocacy. 
um, or witnesses respond to cross-examination if you're practicing that but you can easily see that coming in down the line yeah so at the moment that would be kind of students playing those different roles but definitely there's there's potential for, for AI to be able to do that um, and to think about yeah producing kind of AI type judges who could respond in different ways the technology it, again it's about, about the investment in technology and there's some really interesting questions around where we invest in technology and who pays and yeah. uh, where the money is to be made and obviously where there is money there's a lot more resources put in there and that's one of the things I think that some of the law students can, can really reflect on so for example we know that uh, Alan and Overy have developed um, Harvey which is there that they've taken the kind of the GAI model and they've used based it on their kind of their data and they're using it as part of their work and obviously big global law firms have have the potential to look at different technologies and think about how they're going to use them but we also want to think about equity of technologies don't we so if you're a small organization working in free advice how do you capture the benefits of this without the resources so some really interesting questions to ask around equity and how we use it and in terms of like what's in that space where is the money going and and how do we make sure that actually there's benefit and learning for across the sector and I think one of the things that's really interesting in the, the law sector is this cross-pollination, this cross-fertilisation where organisations perhaps develop something for a commercial purpose but then use it in the pro bono space as well. So one really great example is Law Fairy that's, that's doing this work. So I'd really encourage uh, listeners to look at that, to look at where, how we can take the benefits of in commercial tech and think about how we can use it in that free advice sector, access to justice space. So interesting because, you know, money is power. Absolutely. If you've got the money, you've potentially got the influence to do tech and it starts to get scary then when you put AI into it and are thinking about the power behind it. And of course, lawyers are also subject to professional legal ethics mm -hmm. and regulation. So where does that come into the whole concept of what comes out? on AI and and sharing resources with the with the charitable um, not-for-profit sector. Yeah, absolutely. And what you put into AI is really important because once yeah. it goes in there, it loses everything. And so there's something for uh, law students to be thinking back very clearly about if they're using these tools, what are law schools going to think about in terms of uh, law clinics? So if we have students using these kind of devices to help support some of their research, then we need to be, have very clear rules around confidentiality because any data that ends up in there, there's, there's breaches, potential breaches in there. So there's some really interesting ethical questions around that that we need to be thinking about with students and supporting them to make them understand their professional responsibilities and the professional responsibilities on us. And what's, I think, really interesting in, in the US as part of their professional regulation, so the ABA, the Association of Bar, I think it's called the a ABA, I have to check American Bar Association. Yeah, that's maybe? correct. So <laughs> one of their one of the, one of their regulations is that, that it, there's a responsibility for lawyers to understand and know about technology, um, because if you don't understand the technology, how can you support and assist your client if you don't know how it works? And how do you think about what those ethical questions might be if you don't have any engagement with technology? So I think there are lots of really interesting things for our students to be thinking about uh, in relation to how the technology is used but the ethical questions that come as a result of the, the technologies and broader things around equity of technology and, and power um, so I think it's a really 
interesting, exciting space to be in. And particularly for our students coming in now, this is really the start. We're in the curve of this. It's just starting. So actually, they get to be at the beginning of it, which is fascinating and exciting and there are new jobs that are being created in this space so there's opportunities to do uh, training contracts now that are just legal tech focused so actually as a law student I don't think they need to be worried about is AI going to take my job it's how you partner and work with AI but actually look at the really exciting opportunities there are in terms of your career that you can do something beyond perhaps being a solicitor or a barrister, there are going to be lots of really new, exciting ways of working as a lawyer, but with technology. So I think it's a brilliant time to, to be studying law now. It's fascinating. I could talk to you for days about this. <laughs> and I know as well, um, just quickly, that with your virtual reality courtroom, um, you're looking at, at, at that space of interdisciplinary working as well, aren't you? So yeah. how do you bring in uh, police students, social work students, et cetera, to work with law students, which, of course, it's a very topical conversation at the moment. How do lawyers work um, interdisciplinary and work with other professions in an effective way? And I think thinking about the tech as being another partner in that is is absolutely vital. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a, the tech is a partner. It's, it isn't a magic bullet. It doesn't solve all our problems. It's not It's not about the tech. It's about what the tech can do and, and how we can use the tech to support us. And, and yeah, what we're really, we're, we have a project that's about to start that's where we're bringing together um, policing students, social work students and law students to get involved in a, a mock trial because we think there's a really great potential for them to learn from each other. Yeah. Um, and I think I would really encourage Lawson to think about how you can work with other areas, because when you go into work, that's what you're going to be doing. So you're going to be working with the tech team, the data team, all, all different aspects. If you do family work, you're going to be working, you know, perhaps with child protection services, with local, you know, local governments. There's lots. We never work in isolation. And as a lawyer, you don't work in isolation. So I think any opportunities you can have at law school to work with different people and think about the technology as a partner is, is really helpful and will really help and support you when you go into work into practice. Yeah, it's so easy, isn't it, for students who are studying law or trying to get into the legal profession to have that competitive edge with each other and to forget the that collaboration is actually far far more important and will give you the competitive edge <laughs> absolutely and, and and being able to collaborate well is a real skill and it's not yeah. an easy skill to do either and so any opportunities you can have at, at, at law school to work with other people and learn about collaboration I think will put you in such a good position when you go into you know you go into the workplace and we know for example assessment centers they test collaboration so we know that they'll do things to help students kind of be in a situation where they have to look like they're helping other people and if you've had that experience of doing that and it becomes naturally to you you'll also do really well in that assessment center so all these things linked together they're never things that happen in isolation but that that collaboration not only in person is really important but that collaboration online as well we know that you know people are doing teams zoom meetings now that students going into law firms will be working with clients virtually so it's having the online collaboration skills as well as the in-person skills that are really important as well oh francine it's been absolutely wonderful to talk to you um, and to hear such um, an organic approach to using legal tech in a way that you know is really going to harness and improve the lives of, of so many people it's at this point in the episode that we like to think of some practical actions uh, that our listeners can do can go away 
Um, and there feels like one very obvious one here, which is to play around on these AI uh, tools that are available. You know, use these uh, large language models uh, that you've spoken of, whether that's ChatGPT or, or something else. Uh, pop in a legal question and see what, what it gives you. Perhaps a legal question that you just studied or that you then go and look up in a more traditional way and compare the quality of that answer so you can form your own judgment maybe on how on how that legal tech um, is, is, is working at the moment. And of course, these things are constantly progressing and, and changing. The second one, I'd really encourage people to go online and to have a look at the virtual reality courtroom setup um, that you've got. I know that there's a link on your website to it that we can put into the show notes um, to have a look and see uh, what you've got online about, uh, about its development. Yeah, and I also would say that um, if you look on our Open Justice uh, website, there's a link to some free resources. Or if you just go on to Open Learn, there are also lots of free resources. Um, so we put lots of free content out. Um, so it doesn't have to be on law, it can, on lots of different topics. So if anybody's listening has got some interest in something, you can do some free courses, uh, have a little delve into something that you might be quite interested in. Some of them can be related to law. So we have a course that supports volunteers uh, who are supporting people with domestic violence. We have one on refugees. There are lots of different courses available. Some of them are law related, but some of them are not. So I would really encourage you to have a look around and see if there's anything that you might be interested in. That's fantastic. Um, and actually, people always sort of say it's so difficult to get work experience to then make job applications. And you don't need to necessarily have work experience when you can show your commitment to the law um, in ways um, like, like doing those types of online um, and open courses. Well, um, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much for imparting your wisdom and good luck with the development of this project. Um, we're all going to watch very carefully uh, to see how it goes and to see how far this can get rolled out both um, in an educational setting and of course um, in the access to justice space as well for litigants in person. And thanks to you for listening. 